Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Barn. Dr. Cubitt, it's good to have you on today. We have a special guest joining us. Yes, I'm excited. This is going to be a wonderful discussion today. So we have Jason Stanger, who is our Stanley VP of Ag Resources, and he has a lot of experience farming. He grew up on his family farm, and he's brought all of that to us at Stanley and has been with us for about 11 years now. Is that right, Jason? Yep. Yep, that's correct. That's awesome. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, for sure. I'm excited. So to get us started, when we say you are the VP of Ag Resources, that means that you essentially manage all of our Stanley farms. Yes, we have five farms in the company. And so I manage all five farms. Each farm has its own manager. I help those guys. And then we have a a harvest crew that I, I manage those guys too. Excellent. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from, and how you got involved in farming in the first place. So I grew up farming. I'm actually just right across the Snake River from Stanley's Eden Farm. It's been a farm that's been in my family from the start. My grandpa actually homesteaded the farm. He farmed it, and then my dad and my uncle took over and started running it. As me and my brother and my cousins grew up, we we all, you know, at a very young age, started farming and Really learned everything that I know from them, from my grandpa up through my dad and my uncle, and took it from there. That's awesome. And one interesting thing that I learned about you was that you actually left farming, you mentioned, for about 10 years. So what other career was able to steal you away, and how did you find yourself making your way back? So as our family grew and our farm didn't, it got tough for there to be enough room for all of us. So my family actually started another company called the uh, Gopherd Express. It's a delivery company that kind of like a, a little UPS covered Idaho and into Wyoming and Oregon a little bit. And so I left to help grow that business. But as I did that, I was in the Eastern Idaho part of the company and I had, you know, doing a lot of driving and I spent more time watching farmers than watching the road, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I just kind of always knew, you know, it's, it's just in my blood. I've always loved farming and fluke deal. My, my cousin came up, him and Dusty are good friends. And my cousin came up and mentioned that Stanley's were looking for a farm manager. And I didn't think much of it at the time, but that night I just kept thinking about it, thinking, man, I would love to get back to farming again. And so I contacted Dusty and it all came together from there. Yeah, it's hard to get out of your head once you have something like that, especially when you're so passionate about it. For sure. Yep. So you started out as a farm manager of the Blue Gulch farm. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. How has that transitioned over the years? So when I started, there was only, Stanley's just had two farms, just our Eden farm and, and Blue Gulch farm. And and after my first season, you know, towards the end of that first summer, they had purchased our Arco farm. And, you know, with the farms growing and the company as a whole growing, they were needing someone to take that role of managing the farming side of the company to, to free Dusty and others up to focus on other stuff. So 
So that's when I moved into basically the manager of the end of the year that, you know, the Stanley Ag Resources. And since then, we've added two more farms, our Snowville, Utah farm and our Howe farm. So yeah, as, as it all grew, we just kind of all grew together. Yeah, you were in the right place at the right time. <laughs> yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yep, absolutely. That's awesome. What do you find to be the greatest struggle when it comes to farming? And I know there can be a lot. And for anybody not involved in farming, they may not be familiar with all of the things that come with it. But what have you found to be most challenging? I would say probably weather. Having something that we have no control over and is very unpredictable. You know, we can have a forecast and have an idea what's going to happen. But when weather hits, there's just nothing we can do about it. We have to basically sit back and wait for it to to be done with whatever it's doing, whether it's rain or snow or freezing temperatures. And, yeah, you know, to, to battle through that, we try to watch forecasts and adjust our harvest schedules around it as much as we can. But but, you know, farming the acres we do, there's there's times we just can't stop. We have to keep going to stay on schedule. So we, we just go and hope for the best. And I'd say that's definitely one of the biggest struggles we have. I'll throw in a little question because you two are very familiar with Stan Lee. But for our listeners, how many acres of land are we talking about farming? So about 22,000. Just short of that is what we actually have complete control over. And then we also have farmers that grow hay for us and we call it buying it on the stump. So it's when we take over, it's it's ready to harvest and, and it's basically ours at that point. So we we go in and cut and bail, you know, do do all that. So when you add all that in, there's probably another three to four thousand acres that, that we do that on. For the folks that grow for you, what do you require of them? Because I know that Stanley has such great quality control. So yes. what do you require from them? Most of them have been growing for us for a long time. So they kind of know our program. And then we always go see the fields before we commit to them. So we know if they're if they're going to work for us or not. But like I said, they know that they've got to have clean fields. We got to harvest at the right time. We can't just harvest for yield. It's got to be for quality and they all understand that. So we're able to get the as good a quality from them as, as we do on our own farms. That's awesome. I think from my perspective as a nutritionist, when I talk to owners and horse carers about what sets Stanley apart is, I always say, there's a lot of people that grow grass and make hay. Yeah. But Stanley scientifically curates the fields, the crops, the harvesting, the storage, every aspect of this plant's life is monitored for perfect conditions. And I think that's one of the huge things that sets you guys apart. So Yeah. And actually, I have a funny little story that I didn't realize until just a couple of years ago, and you might find funny, Jason, as well. Back in my time before Stanley, like when I was in college, one of the farmers that actually helped us out and grow a little bit I actually spent part of a summer swathing hay for them <laughs> and, and they grow for us so now. So I, when I found that out, I was like, the world is connected in the strangest ways. <laughs> yeah. that, that's probably not a good thing for me to know. Sometimes I'm needing an operator. <laughs> I did a good job, promise. <laughs> so we were talking about how Stanley grows hay and just kind of what makes this different. So Let's talk about that. Let's dive into that a little bit more. What makes our forage growing environment ideal for 
growing, producing hay compared to other locations across the country? The biggest part is our weather. You know, we're, we're really dry in Idaho through the summer, get most of our moisture in the winter through snow. And so it's a mix of, of our dry climate and just real rich soil just really creates the perfect conditions for, for really nice forage. We're able to, to let it dry all naturally. We don't ever use any chemicals or anything that helps so we can bell it wetter, you know, keep it from molding, no mold inhibitors, anything like that. So everything's just all natural on, on how we can grow it and still have it really high quality. Yes. And we have actually, for some that maybe aren't familiar with the hay that is grown out in this area, sometimes the question comes up, how is Stanley hay so green? Like, because they're not used to seeing green hay unless something has been done to it. Right. But that, we don't have to do anything to it. Like, that's naturally what it is because of the environment that we grow it in. Yes. Yeah. What turns hay brown or what makes it lose its green color is moisture. So, so any rain or, you know, heavy dew at night, high humidity, that all takes the color away. And we really have very little of that through the summer. So, you know, just cures down slow and keeps the color. You also, once you've cut, baled that hay, it's pretty much immediately put under cover, right? Out of the damage of the light, because light will also break down vitamin A and vitamin E, which are associated with color. And I know that you guys have pretty amazing storage of, of this hay. Correct. Yeah. So we, that's one of the big focuses we have. We our goal is to within 24 hours of it being bailed that it's in a stack and completely wrapped with tarps. We usually know ahead of a time if it's going to stay on the farm, you know, and be hauled into the plant later, we'll tarp it up on the farm or the trucking company will haul it in right away. And just the second it hits the ground at the plant, it gets covered up. The tarps are completely wrapped. There's tarps on the bottom sides, top. So it's, you know, when we, we can go open those tarps up, six, eight months down the road, and it looks like it did the day we put it in there. Yeah, it looks great. And Dr. Cubitt, since you're in Virginia, you're in a completely different part of the country. Do you have any additional feedback to add to this question since you're used to kind of a different environment compared to where hay is grown here? Yeah. And you've heard me say, it's like Idaho is in a little biodome of perfect hay growing conditions because it rains a lot here. We have ups and downs and weather patterns kind of blink and the weather will be different the next day. So for hay growers to get a second cutting, well, that's great. I mean, how many cuttings is normal for you, Jason? Depends on the farm. The two farms that are close to the plant will get four cuttings of alfalfa and mm -hmm. three on orchard grass, two on timothy. Our higher elevation farms will get three of alfalfa and then the same two and three on timothy and orchard grass. And see, that's just unheard of out here. The growing conditions just aren't ideal. Like I said, it rains. Our first cutting hay is usually very mature because we've had a lot of a wet spring and it's hard for people to get out there. But there's also, you know, there's very few locations where that's all they do. We do have a lot of people that will make their own hay. And so maybe that's a grazing field and now they've turned it into a hay field. But we also have a lot of humidity. It's very humid out here. So there's no way that within a 24-hour period you can get that hay dry. Uh, the hay's out there and getting tedded days and days to try and get it dry enough. And so. Right. Jason, what would you say is your favorite thing about your job? What do you love coming to work every day to do? 
I just love being in the fields just from start to finish. You know, when we're, when we're out just prepping the ground for planting, when the planters are out there. And then one of my favorites is when the crops start coming up. I really like going out when the plants are just starting to come out of the ground and then harvest. You hear a lot of people say they love the smell of fresh cut hay and that, you know, that's a big part of it too. I, you know, when we put the swathers in the field the first time of the year, it's, I, I can't help myself. I always got to be out there. Being in the fields and then just our team, our ag team is just incredible and really fun to work with. They all have their specific job, but but anything you need from any of them, they're right there to help. And so I really enjoy our team too. Yeah, that makes a difference. Yeah. If our folks at home could see Jason's face when he was asked that question, it lit up. <laughs> and I was thinking, this could easily be a Super Bowl commercial about what it is to be a hay farmer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's, it makes me feel bad when I'm out there getting to see these amazing fields. And, you know, some of the views, the pictures I take of being out there, I feel bad for for anybody that's stuck in an office. <laughs> and I think we need to share more of those pictures, Katie, because it is not a sight that a lot of people get the luxury of seeing. Right. You know, out here on the East Coast, we just don't have the vastness of land. Maybe in the Midwest and West, there's the vastness of land for people to see. But it's pretty, pretty dang cool. So we yeah. should post more pictures. Now, you know what we might have to do is later this year when you get out and get busy and going, we'll just have to follow you around and kind of do a behind the scenes, some video action. So you, so everybody can kind of- follow him with a drone. That would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> or is yeah. my kids a drone? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So Jason, I know this is going to be very dependent depending on the time of year, obviously, but- Take us through a day farming at Stanley and talk to us a little bit about how that changes from spring to summer to fall and then winter. Yeah. So right now, for example, you know, spring's coming. It's it's still too wet for us to be in the field, but we're already out there, you know, checking fields, kind of making a plan for what's going to happen, you know, what equipment needs to be in the field first, doing soil samples, knowing what kind of fertility we're going to need. So this time of year is a lot of that. Then planting, we we spend a lot of time with tillage and, and planting. Then after that, it's all about irrigation. As we mentioned before, it's so dry here, we have to irrigate everything. And so a lot of time and attention goes into just making sure we're, we're getting the right amount of water on the fields, watching for any issues coming up through the growing process. And from there, when it, you know, it's getting close to harvest time, we you know spend a lot of time walking fields at that point. You know, trying to find the right timing to cut everything. We have to have our water shut off for, you know, depending on the year, five to nine days before we cut. So we're out there, you know, trying to look for the right signs of when it's time to shut the water off. Then, you know, out there again, right before we cut to make sure it's the right time, that the conditions are right for it. And then watching it from there for drying down to, to be ready to bail. Going into the fall, it's a lot of lot of tillage work. We do a lot of planting in the fall. Our timothy and alfalfa will plant late summer, early fall. And then it's just all about tillage, getting you know the fields that are getting rotated out. We spend a lot of time tilling them, having them ready to. Real important to get them ready to take moisture through the winter, and have them ready so we can get going earlier in the spring. Right, that's excellent. And then winter time, you're probably working on equipment and doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
it's an incredible amount of equipment that it takes to to do all this. And between the harvest crew, they spend the whole winter working on that equipment. It takes, you know, from the time we stop and, you know, we're usually done bailing by about October 10th. And those guys don't take any time off. They put equipment in the field right away and work on that. And then the farm guys are working on irrigation equipment, whether it's, you know, fixing a pivot or pumps, you know, pulling those and reconditioning them, putting them back in. I can't say we're not overly busy in the winter. We definitely get a little breathing room, but still a lot goes on to be ready for the next year. You made a comment about getting the fields ready in the fall to take on moisture in the, in the winter. What does that mean to the average horse owner at home? So when a field's not going to have a forage crop in it, we call it ripping them or deep tillage. So we'll go in and break that soil up. You know, over the years of of alfalfa and timothy with all the equipment that runs through that the ground gets really compacted it makes it hard for it to take water so so we go in there and rip them deep usually you know 15 to 18 inches deep to just help break that soil back up and and allow it to let water penetrate through neat neat and so will one field always grow alfalfa or do you grow alfalfa first in a field and then after that to kind of capitalize on what the alfalfa is going to put into the soil. Can you touch on that a little bit? I think it's super interesting. So basically everything starts as an alfalfa field. I would consider that our starting point of any field. So we let it grow depending on the farm and how well the the crop's doing. It'll go anywhere from three to sometimes as much as seven years in alfalfa. And then we go in and plant Timothy, but we don't till the ground going from alfalfa to Timothy. We just drill it right into the alfalfa crop. And then we're able to kill off that alfalfa and have just a straight Timothy or straight orchard grass. Or sometimes we'll plant orchard and have orchard alfalfa mix. And then those crops will also grow for, you know, three to five years. And that's when it's, you know, we feel like it's time to take them out, you know, rip the fields. And then we go into barley, sometimes potatoes, a little bit of corn. Uh, a few other crops just for a good rotation before we start the process over back into alfalfa again. And I imagine that's that's kind of a, a huge thought process in going through that because alfalfa is going to put nutrients in the soil being a being a legume, right? And then I imagine potatoes in the end, well, they're helping you with that deep tilling Correct. by their tubers going down in there. So, you know, it all kind of falls into line that nothing is done haphazardly at Stanley. There's a method to every process that happens. Right. You know, in, in an alfalfa, when it breaks down, you know, as it dies off, it creates a lot of nitrogen. In grasses, you know, Timothy orchard grass, those take a lot of nitrogen. So it helps a lot as that breaks down to, to feed the grass plants to get them growing. And then also with alfalfa to having such a big root, those roots at times can go down. I've heard of them being over six foot deep and they're pretty good sized roots. So as those break down, it kind of aerates the soil and it kind of does its own tillage, creating space in the soil to take on water and, and nutrients. So for anyone who's not from Idaho, he is saying the word root. <laughs> root. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what is he saying? <laughs> roots. 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 <laughs> I was like, maybe he's from Minnesota. <laughs> roots. I know. Well, it's funny. We don't, we talk about accents, Idaho. We don't have accents out here, yeah. but root. Crick, you know? (laughs) 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 No, that's super interesting information. Thank you. Yeah. And the potato crops are, like you said, they're real, you know, potatoes have to have really loose soil for them to grow a good crop. So, so when it goes in potatoes, it, you know, there's a lot of attention to that, you know, loosening the soil up and, and they use a lot of nutrients too, that get left behind. So 
going into a barley or forage crop behind potatoes is it's a really good rotation. Nice. And all of this is super important because how can you sustainably continue to grow crops without taking care of the soil that will then help provide the best crop, the best yields that you can get. It's all so connected and just detailed to the process because the more you give to it, the more it's going to give back. Yes. And tillage is a big thing these days on, you know, erosion and all kinds of different issues. And so we consider ourselves minimum till where, you know, between that alfalfa and grass crop, we'll go six to 10 years without tillage at all. So it really helps control erosion and environmental helps that way of, of not tilling so much. That's awesome. And the horse, the, we've talked about the microbiome. We talk about the microbiome in the horse's gut, this population of bacteria and organisms that really fuel the horse. But, you know, when I've talked to our listeners about the microbiome, I do say that there are microbiomes everywhere. And I, I know that more and more agronomists and soil scientists are studying the kind of soil microbiome. And so having such a long time between tilling also, I'm sure, builds up that microbiome to feed that soil, feed the plant. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a big reason for it, you know, organic matter in the ground. And yeah, that is that is a very good point. I want to get into talking a little bit more about you can only do so much, right, when you're rotating crops and doing all of that. And so the soil sometimes needs a little bit of extra help in a couple different ways. And one of those ways is by use of fertilizer. And then once the crop is here or kind of in that process, utilizing certain maybe herbicides or pesticides on our crops. Why is that important for our growing processes? That's a good question. It, it's one of those things that we try to use as little as possible, but without using them at all, you know, when it comes to fertility, there's just no way to ever get the yield, the, you know, the amount of crop that you need to be profitable farming if you don't use those, those fertilizers. We call it mining. If you don't fertilize, you're going to mine all the nutrients out of that soil. And at, at some point there'll be nothing left. You know, you just really won't be able to grow a crop. So fertilizer is necessary. You, you really couldn't do it without it. But like I said, we, we soil sample everything. We never put on more than the plant's going to need to grow. And then we do a lot of composting too. There's lots of dairies in the area. They, you know, they have a lot of compost that they need to get rid of. So, so anywhere we can, uh, you know, as much as we can get our hands on compost, we put that on very, very good for the soil. Putting compost on a field one year, you get benefit out of it for two to three years and cut down on commercial fertilizer use. So that helps a lot. Then when it comes to pesticides, we same deal there. We never use full rates on anything. You know, all, all the chemicals have labels on them telling you, you know, what you can use. And you'll say a chemical calls for two quarts to the acre, we'll put on one or the minimum we can and get the job done. And also with the label, it tells us when we can do it and make sure that it, there's nothing left in the field when harvest comes. It, they call it a harvest interval when, you know, we have to have this applied to not have any concern of, of any residual out there. A good example of why we have to use pesticides, we, on one of our farms, we had a really bad infestation of grasshoppers last summer. Once we found that problem, we, we had to go in and spray for them. And after we were done, I went and walked in those fields and, you know, those things will move in from the edges. You know, they start on the edge and work their way to the center. And 
and you could walk through the edge of that field and, and it had just destroyed the crop. It, a lot of it was barley that, that it was affecting and they, they get in our Timothy also and, and they eat the seeds, the stems, you know, just destroys the crop. And you could actually see a line where, where we'd stopped them at. If we wouldn't have done that, there wouldn't have been a crop left. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very important to keep those under control. If you don't, they'll just multiply. And before you know it, there's nothing left, you know. And then as far as weeds, you know, same deal there. If we didn't control them, there would be, you know, weeds are usually stronger than any any farming right. crops. So, so they'll, right. the weeds will take over and, and cause some issues there too. So so it's one of those things we wish we didn't have to use them, but but we try to try to use them in the best way possible to control our issues, but never create issues at the same time. Right. And you're so on top of everything that you're monitoring the field so frequently that as soon as you start to see weed infestation, then we're on top of it then, or the grasshoppers, you weren't waiting until they decimated 50% of the crop before you decide to do anything. So the constant monitoring, you can be good land stewards too. Right. I also, in my head, I'm thinking you cover such a large amount of ground that you have a responsibility to all of your smaller neighbors as well. I mean, if you let something go crazy on the size of land that you have, it could really decimate smaller neighbors that just wouldn't have the finances to do the control. So everybody's working together. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's, you know, every farmer's on the same page to be able to keep farming. Right. And you mentioned not putting on as much as even like the maximum amount that is allowed and taking all that into account. I mean, if we go back into remembering like chemistry in high school, you know, all chemicals have half-lives, right? And they break down to a certain point. And so that's how come those recommendations, the label recommendations come to be, right? It's the science behind it and understanding how all of those things work. And that is why, because we've had questions, we've had people ask about, you know, are there chemical residues on the hay? Are my animals eating it? And so, and it's a very valid question, right? I mean, anybody who owns an animal, they should be asking those questions, especially if they don't understand how some of that works. And so for us to be able to speak to this and be welcoming of them to ask those questions if they don't completely understand. I'm glad that we're having this conversation to kind of help them, you know, alleviate some of those concerns so they know that by the time it gets to their animal, it's not something that they need to be concerned about because we're doing it the right way. Yes. And, you know, these chemicals, before they will label them to be used on, on any crop in any state, there's, you know, years and years of study that go into it. And We'll hear of a new chemical that we know is going to be really good for what we're after, but we know it's going to be you know easily five years before it'll be labeled to use in Idaho and on our crops. They're not just testing it in a lab in some other state. They're testing it across the country and making sure that it's there's no side effects, you know. Right. And then on the flip side, we've also had questions come in, there's a grasshopper in my hay. Like if we use pesticides, how could there be a grasshopper in there? Can you talk to us a little bit about why that might occur? And that's part of not using full rates. You know, by doing that, we're not going to get everything. There's going to be be animals or, or uh, you know, weeds and whatnot that are going to survive. But we're keeping it to a minimum for sure. But unless we go out there and overdo it, we're not going to control them all. And it's everything, you know, it could be a mouse that's in the field or weeds, you know, there's just always ones that are going to survive through that. 
And I think another thing that hopefully our listeners understand is that growing hay it's not like we're in a greenhouse. We're out in the environment. We're out with nature. It's just something to remember the scope and perspective of, of, of what happens when it comes to farming. And that's just real life, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to cover the acres that we do, there's you know a lot of equipment out there to get it all done in time. And because we're so dry here, we have to do a lot of it at night. Our raking, our baling is all at night. And, you know, they're out there baling a windrow that can't see the bottom of it so and our guys are all trained if they see something they'll stop you know say they see a, a pop can they'll stop and pick it up they won't bail that but right. there is things that like you said we're not in a greenhouse so we're not going to catch a hundred percent of that right and we're humans not robots yeah exactly so. <laughs> yep. what we're human <laughs> <laughs> okay Another subject that I, I want to talk about a little bit in this episode is genetic technology, right? So GMO, which is genetically modified organism, exists. And we do get asked about it. And so just for our listeners to understand, as of December 1st of 2013, Stanley has had limited amount of GMO alfalfa and alfalfa blended products in retail outlets. And we recognize and respect the wants and needs of our consumers. And so we offer products that are also non-GMO as well. And those could include, you know, our straight orchard or Timothy grass products across all formats. So that could be our orchard grass pellets, our Timothy grass pellets, Timothy compressed bales, products like that. And the great thing is, is we live in a world where we can provide and offer choices and people are able to receive those choices, which is wonderful. And so again, to kind of explain maybe the, the science behind it and just the benefits, can you share the importance of GMO alfalfa and why use it? Yes, yeah, so I, I think it's important to understand that GMO does not mean Roundup Ready. A lot of people associate those things together that, well, if it's GMO, they modified it to where it can take Roundup. GMO can be something as simple as just changing an alfalfa plant to where it is drought tolerant. It can grow with less water or modified to where the leaves will stay attached to the stems better than a standard alfalfa plant. So for the environment, for everything, I, you know, it's really important that we can be sustainable, you know, to, to be able to use less water. You know, it, it's a big deal in our area right now. There, you know, we're in a drought and we're going to run out of water if we're, if we're not doing these things to, to limit the amount of water we have to use. So, so it is very important that, you know, these, these modifications they're doing it, it's not necessarily a bad thing for the crops at all. It's, it's helping us do better with what we've got. When we decided we had to mention that we are GMO, we steer clear of Roundup Ready as much as possible. We don't plant it on our own farms anymore, but we do have to buy a lot of alfalfa, and, and there's always a chance that, that we'll buy one that we think is not Roundup Ready, but it could be. So we're careful on it, but there's a chance that it could be in there. Dr. Cubitt, do you have any additional insight from kind of the perspective of from the animal from the horse and nutrition wise? It's very interesting. As I mentioned earlier, I've, I've listened to several people that kind of break it down, break down this genetic technology. And it's really 
moving us forward so that we can more sustainably manage the land to continue to produce enough food to feed the growing population of the world. And that kind of takes it to a much more a broader view than us just feeding horses. But probably the three most common traits in all GMO crops are resistant to insect damage, tolerance to herbicides, and then resistant to plant viruses so that we can put less input in, which is taking resources, which is taking finances, and to get a desirable product out. Listening to a very interesting speaker the other day, and the actual amount of land that we grow crops on now is we grow significantly more crops than we ever have before. The amount of yield per acre is significantly higher. The actual amount of land that we farm in crops is the lowest it's ever been since back in the 40s. That has come about from selecting different plant types using this genetic engineering or technologies. You know, there's so many more people living on our planet. Resources, humans need water, humans need food. So that's taking away that what we can put on our crops, but we're still expected to grow all these crops and in abundance. So I think it's definitely the way to go. And I agree, you know, I think that we get confused that there are so many different types of alterations that we can make in these plants. And I think there's a people synonymously associate Roundup Ready with genetic modification. But like you mentioned, we're modifying plants so they can be more drought tolerant. Another big one in alfalfa is low lignin and alfalfa. So what does that mean? It means it's more digestible. Lignin in the horse is an undigestible fiber. So if it's got lower lignin, every mouthful the horse eats is more digestible. So again, you can feed your horse less and get more bang for your buck. Or if you look at dairies where there's so much input, you know, those dairy cows can convert that alfalfa to product with less input. There's a lot of ways that we can connect this to farming more sustainably by using these. We just want to educate people as to the facts and the science, and you can make your decisions based on at least being a little bit more educated on the why we use these practices. But as Katie mentioned, we do have choices if you still have a a reason why you would not choose that. Yep. Excellent. So let's get into harvest now. You talked about how many cuttings that we get for a certain number of crops and everything. You think about harvest a lot of the time when you have some of, I guess it depends on the area, the, the country that you're in, but fall is kind of like, you know, a time of year where people think about harvest. But for us, what time of year do we start harvesting and when are we harvesting the different forages? So we typically start around June 1st. That's when when our Eden farm, our home farm is is usually ready to go. Our farms are are really spaced out perfectly to we always start with alfalfa and by the time we you know we start one farm when it's done the next one's ready so we we get through all five farms and by that time the timothy's ready to go. We basically the process starts right over and there's a lot of times we never stop, you know, it's, we finish one and, and it's just move right on to, to the next crop. And it really goes that way all the way till, you know, early October when we finish. And there might be times that we have, you know, a week or 10 days where, where we're stopped, but yeah, it really just, once we start, we're, we're going all summer long. Yeah. How do you know when it's time to harvest these forages? Because 
it does matter when you start cutting and harvesting leading up to the day and sometimes even the time of day. So what are you looking for? Because this can, this is what kind of makes or breaks quality forage, right? Yes. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that's a big, big thing for us. You know, growing up farming, we were all about yield. We, we wanted to, to get the max out of every field, but, but it costs in quality. On our family farm, we were just selling to a feedlot, you know, and, and the quality wasn't near as important. That's been a hard thing for me to transition of, hey, I'm going to give up some yield to get better quality. It's just something we do. Spend a lot of time walking in the fields and we just kind of know what to watch for. We can tell when when a crop's getting close and kind of factoring in weather, you know, what might change on heat's going to make it cure or, or grow faster, you know, so we watch that and we just make sure that we're going to cut that before it starts getting too mature and, and losing feed quality or quality in general. And you mentioned at one point, what time of the day are you cutting, actually cutting the, the different crops? And it might be different for each one, but alfalfa versus your grasses, when are you cutting? So as far as cutting goes, it's always during the day. Typically, we'll get a little bit of dew at night, so a little moisture on the plants, and we wait till that's gone. So on average, I'd say by, you know, 9, 30, 10 o'clock in the morning, we're going. And we're able to cut till about, you know, about the time the sun starts going down when, when we might get some moisture back in there. But everything else is is at night. We got to have have a little bit of dew or moisture on the plant when we're, especially alfalfa, when we're raking or billing. You know, if, if there's no moisture, the leaves are going to fall off. So we, you know, we wait till there's a little bit of moisture on it to do that side of it after, you know, after the haze dried down. Perfect. Dr. Cubitt, from your perspective, what is the impact of feeding hay that was harvested too early or too late in terms of maturity? How does that change how you would then need to build feed programs for horses that may be consuming either, you know, that type of hay that wasn't maybe harvested at the ideal time? It really, for me, will affect the fiber fractions, the ADF and the NDF, which we have talked about ADF as a measure, really, if you take it down to lay terms, measure of digestibility and NDF more of a measure of pelletability. So I can tell, especially on our local grass haze, first cutting, someone will say, oh, my horse really doesn't want to eat this. And if I look at a forage report and I'll immediately look at those two numbers and typically they're quite high, which it doesn't concern me as much with, you know, a fat laminitic pony that I don't want them to guts the feed anyway. I want them to slowly consume it and probably not get a lot out of it. But for a lot of our more performance horses, higher level horses, then I want them to get the max amount of nutrition out of that forage. And so earlier maturity, it's going to be more digestible, more palatable for them to eat. So more bang for your buck, really. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And then Jason, so from the farming aspect, since, you know, we also have the manufacturing plant, transportation, you know, the other facets of, of the business, what does quality assurance mean to you? And we've talked about this a little bit through this episode, but how is it implemented daily on our farms? Yeah, so our farm guys have been with the company for a long time. In fact, our main guy that runs our harvest crew, he's been with the company for about 20 years. So so he's grown with the company. He's seen what high quality is and what's what's expected for the company and, and from our customers. So him and his whole crew, they just know what is expected from our customers. And he spends a lot of time just making sure he gets that. 
you know, just the years of experience and really not just him, but, but everybody on the team has been here for a long time and have heard the complaints, heard the issues, you know, so they've learned what, what it takes to do it right. And it starts from the farm managers in the field to the end of the harvest crew when it's time to put the tarps on the hay to just make sure it's perfect. And like I mentioned earlier, weather, there's nothing we can do about it. And and if weather affects the quality on a field, we make sure that, that there's notes all the way through the system of what happened to this hay and what process it might work for. And, you know, a lot of times we just know it's not going to work at all. We have to sell it locally to a feedlot or a dairy because it's not the right standard to, to run through the plant. That's awesome. So how has technology helped us grow better forage? And what are some of your favorite technologies that we've adopted here at Stanley? I would say my favorite one or the best one that we've done is is our steamers. So the steamers are what goes in the front of our balers to basically add moisture back to the hay. Before we had those, we could only bale at night. And a lot of times, especially if there's a breeze or, or really hot days, there is no moisture at night. It is just bone dry out there and we have to bell it. We can't just let it sit for days and not bell it. So these steamers have made so whether there's dew at night or not, or even on a cooler day, we can run them all day long and puts moisture back in that hay. It, it does it right on front of the baler. So, it, you know, it's putting it in right as we pick it up off the ground and it holds all the leaves, hold, you know, everything that's important to be in that bell. It keeps it on there. And these things, they use just water, you know, to, in fact, we, we filter it. it. It runs through water softeners. One of the farms even has a reverse osmosis system that, so this water, you, you know, you could drink it right out of the tank. So, so that's Look all we're that. putting Only the best on, for our but, horses, yeah. listeners, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and our yeah, other livestock. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So they, they've been a game changer for us. You know, the, the amount of nice forage loaded with leaves is so different now because we're, you know, we have that technology to be able to to do it. That's awesome. So to wrap this episode up, if there was one thing that you could tell Stanley customers, what would you want them to know about what you do and why you do it? You know, just, we love what we do. It's just such an amazing team. And it's, and it starts, like I said, not, not just the farms, but all the way through the company and, and just so, so dedicated. And we truly want to be the, the high quality producer we want that to be what we're known for, that it doesn't get any better than Stanley. And and it's not just something we say, it's what we live by. It, everybody I deal with throughout the company is, has got the same goal and the determination and the, the attention to detail that goes into that is is incredible. It, you know, it's just an amazing team. I agree. <laughs> I, I love our team <laughs> that we work with. It's, it's, it's yeah. great. Dr. Cubitt, do you have anything else to add to this episode before we close things up. A couple of comments that, you know, based on what Jason's saying, the quality control and the quality of the product, you can rest assured that it's there. And so really for me, when I'm recommending products or working with clients, that I have to make sure that there's traceability, that, that if there's ever a problem, we can always work it out that we're feeding the best quality products that we can because nothing about horses is inexpensive. Everything is expensive. And so if I'm going to pay the money for it, I want to be assured that I'm getting the best possible product that I can. I really do recommend a lot of Stanley products because I know that you're really getting the bang for your buck. I know that the quality is there and the team, as you said, is really great to work with. So, Right. 
Well, thank you both. Thank you, Dr. Cubit, for being on today. And Jason, thank you for sneaking away from being out in the fields and checking on things as we get close to planting now to, you know, spend some time with us and talk to us about what you all do. I'm happy to do it and do it again anytime. Awesome. I think this is going to be a really good one for our listeners, Katie. I think Fascinating so too. information. I think so. I really hope you all appreciate this. You know, reach out to us. Of course, I always ask you if you have a topic to reach out to us at podcast at stanleyforage.com. But reach out to us too to let us know what you think of the episode because we love hearing from you and we're here to serve you. We want to be talking to you about the things that are important to you and that will benefit you. So be willing to reach out to us because we we love hearing from you. So again, thank you both for being on today and uh, we'll talk to you all later. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people. And subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water. <laughs>